thank you that you came, you lived, and died for us, Lord. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to come and indwell us, Lord, and give us life and give us power, Lord. That same power that raised you from the dead, Lord, lives in us now, Lord. We thank you for that, Lord. Speak to us. Give us ears to hear this morning what you would speak to us. Help us to be a doer of your word as we hear it. We're so thankful for your presence here this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you take your seats? I think we need to continue to worship. Wow. Well, today we're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount, which we have entitled The Upside Down Kingdom. And we've discussed thus far that God's kingdom is much different than the world's kingdom. God's kingdom says we are here to live for God's glory, where the world's kingdom says we are here to live for our own glory. And today we're going to look at Matthew 7, 7 through 11. So open your Bibles to Matthew 7, 7 through 11. And as we begin this morning, I will lead us in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. We honor you, Father. We thank you that we can lift our voices to you in praise and honor. We thank you. You give us the ability to sing to you with our hearts. It's so glorious to be in corporate worship together, praising and honoring you, Father. Oh, it's such a great day to be in the house of the Lord, Father. We ask that you continue to be magnified in this community of believers. Help us to lift Christ up above all else. Help us to live for your word and let that be our authority and be led by the power of your spirit, Father. We thank you for this morning. And it's through Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, and it says this. Christ is speaking, and he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So what comes to mind when we think of asking, seeking, and knocking? Do we get the impression that our requests, our prayers, will be answered instantly? Well, I want to start briefly by looking up the original Greek words for ask, seek, and knock in Matthew 7, 7, just so we can gain a fuller, clearer understanding of what Christ is trying to say in this section. So the first word we'll look up is ask in the Greek. And the Greek word for ask is etio. And this could also be translated as a request, a petition, or to beg. So you could have used that, those words instead of the word ask there. And then the second word, so we looked up ask, the second word I want to look up is seek. Seek in the Greek is zitio, which could be translated to desire, to search, 
to strive or to investigate. So we looked up ask, we look up seek, and the final word that I want to look up is knock in the Greek. And the Greek word for knock is kruo, which could be translated as to strike or to beat. So what comes to mind when we hear the words petition, beg, search, strive, investigate? What is it Jesus is telling us when he says to ask, seek, and knock? It means we are persistent. We persevere. We seek. We strive to know our sovereign God. Especially in the section on prayer. So this leads to truth number one. Truth number one says Christians work at prayer. Christians work at prayer. Does that sound like us this morning? Do we actually work at prayer? Many of us sit down to pray and instantly our mind begins to wander, right? We start out in prayer and by the end, we have our whole grocery list written out, right, in our heads. Or where we're going to eat for lunch or what things we need to get done today. And, and then after wrestling and struggling in prayer, and we decide this is so hard, we give up on it. We give up on that time spent with God in prayer. We conclude it's just not my personality to concentrate and focus, or I'm just not wired to be a prayer warrior, or it's just not my spiritual gift to spend time in prayer. Can you imagine how the rest of our life went if we had the same attitude? For example, I start a new job and everything I do at first seems overwhelming and hard. Or I start jogging. And after, for exercise, and after about 100 feet of jogging, I'm exhausted, ready to pass out. So you know what I conclude? I conclude, man, if I was supposed to work a job or exercise, it would be so much easier, so much more natural. I guess I wasn't made to exercise or work. Or, I guess, jogging and working does not really fit my personality. But I think we persevere in our jobs because we want financial stability. Or we often persevere in exercise because we want to be healthy. But does it matter, or are we concerned about our spiritual health or well-being, church? Paul talking to Timothy, and you don't need to go there, but 1 Timothy 4.8 says this, For while bodily training or physical training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. What are our priorities? What do we care about? What is important to us? Because what we care about, we do. Are we praying? Are we praying? Jesus says, make your petitions to your heavenly Father. Seek Him with all your heart and continue to knock. But you may be wondering why Jesus wants us to persevere in prayer. 
I mean, why do we need to be so persistent in prayer? Is God so busy that he doesn't have time to hear us? Like the father working on something and his child asks him a question? And his dad's so focused on working that he's not recognizing what his son's doing. So the son continues to ask and ask. And the father continues to not hear him. And finally the son tugs on his leg to get his daddy's attention. Is that how God is with us? We have to ask and ask, and finally God drops what he does and gives his attention to us? Well, turn with me to Psalm 139, 1 through 6. Psalm 139, 1 through 6. We'll have a a fuller understanding of how intimately God is involved in our lives as our Father. And it says this, God's holy, infallible, inerrant word says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This passage reveals that God knows our thoughts. God knows every word we will speak. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And by the way, God is omniscient, right? And omniscient means God has all knowledge. That means he has all knowledge of the past, the present, and the future. That means this. God knows every prayer we will pray before we ever pray it. Do we recognize this? God knows every prayer we will pray before we ever pray it. And that leads to truth number two. Truth number two says praying with persistence reveals our dependence on God. Praying with persistence reveals our dependence on Christ. Our prayer life shows, reveals our trust, our dependence on Christ. Who are we trusting in? God or something else? And if you're wondering, look at your prayer life and you'll get an answer really quickly. The first beatitude that we went through in Matthew 5, 3, it was blessed are the poor in spirit. Or blessed are those who recognize they are spiritually helpless and they depend on Christ for their strength. Prayer reveals that we are poor in spirit, that we need God's help, that we are dependent, utterly helpless without him. We rely and depend on him for our strength. Leonard Ravenhill has a few quotes on prayer, and I feel like some people are falling asleep, so these are going to shake and wake us up a little bit, because these are some pretty tough quotes by Ravenhill. But he says this, A man may study because his brain is hungry for knowledge, even Bible knowledge, but he prays because his soul is hungry for God. At another occasion, Ravenhill said, The true church lives and moves and has its being in prayer. 
And then finally, he says this. The true man of God is heartsick, grieved at the worldliness of the church, grieved at the toleration of sin in the church, grieved at the prayerlessness in the church. He is disturbed that the corporate prayer of the church has no longer pulls down the strongholds of the devil. Are we spending time with God in prayer? What about in our homes? Does our families spend time in prayer? Husbands, are we leading our wives in prayer? Men, are we leading our families in prayer? What about as a church? Is the family church driven by the Holy Spirit or programs and entertainment? A holy Spirit-empowered church is a praying community. Without prayer, we're just working in our own strength. How many churches have you visited where prayer is highlighted as their strength? I know, we usually go to churches and visit, and they say we're driven by small groups, we're driven by our worship, our traditional or contemporary worship, and they say, well, we're, we're driven by discipleship or preaching, but I will tell you, no one's driven by discipleship or preaching if they're not a prayerful church. Our church is driven by prayer. I wonder how many would say they are driven by prayer. I wonder if we at all are driven by prayer here at the family church. Because the reality of it is, a prayerless church is a worthless church. A prayerless church is a worthless church. Oh, how we need to be on our knees in communion with God as a church body. Let's continue to move on because I have to get to verse 11. I'm going to run out of time. So Matthew 7, 8, which says, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. This leads to the question, does God answer everyone's prayers? Does God answer everyone's prayers? Because the verse said what? For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Does that mean that God answers the prayer of the person who is living in rebellion to him? Does that mean that God answers the prayers of the Buddhist monk? Does that mean that God answers the the prayers to the, the Muslims that are praying to Allah? Does that mean God answers the prayers of the Jehovah Witnesses? Does that mean God answers the prayers to the Mormons? Does that mean God answers the prayers to the Roman Catholics? Well, truth number three says this, God does not listen to everyone's prayers. Truth number three says God does not listen to everyone's prayers. And I found this great list by John MacArthur that shows verses that reveal those God does not listen to. And I sort of modified this list. But number one, and I'm going to go through a lot of verses, so you might have to just jot where they're located, and you might not be able to get to them because I'm going to go through a lot of them here. But God does not answer, number one, God does not answer the prayer of those who have selfish motives. God does not answer the prayers of those who have selfish motives. Their prayers are focused on themselves. Turn with me to James 4.3. James 4.3. And it says this. When you ask, 
you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. Number two, God does not answer the prayer of those who aren't asking in faith. This person is not walking in the Spirit, but is walking by the flesh or the sinful nature. And we're going to look at James 1, 6 and 7 on this one. James 1, 6 and 7, so a few pages back, but it says this, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. God does not answer the prayer of those who continue to reject him. Those who continue to reject him. Romans tells us that all know there is a God. Nature reveals that there must be a creator. But many, it says in Romans, suppress that truth of the knowledge of God that they naturally have. So let's look at a verse on talking about those who continue to reject God. Turn to Proverbs 1, 24 and 25, and then we're going to skip down to verse 28. But remember, if you don't get to in time, just jot them down. But it says this, Because I have called you and you, re- and you refuse not to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would not have None of my reproof, verse 28, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. And I know these passages are scary passages. Number four, God does not answer the prayer of those who remain in sin. God does not answer the prayers of those who remain in sin. They continue to be ruled by sin instead of God. And we're going to look at Isaiah 59.2. Isaiah 59.2 for this one. And it says this. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Number five, God does not answer the prayer of those who are an unbeliever, the lost, those who are not God's children. And for this one, we're going to look at John 9, 31. John 9, 31, and it says this, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Number six, God does not answer the prayer of those who are violent and shed blood. And this passage is Isaiah 1 15. Isaiah 1.15, which says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. All right. Number seven. We're getting through this. God does not answer the prayer of those who worship idols or a part of false religions. And where we're going to look at this is Jeremiah 11, 11 through 14. Jeremiah 11, 11 through 14. And it says this, Therefore, 
Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing disaster upon you that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they make offerings. But they cannot save them in the time of their trouble. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah. And as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to shame altars to make offerings to Baal. Therefore, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or a prayer on their behalf. I will not listen when they call to me in the time of trouble. Number eight. God does not answer the prayer of those who are proud and arrogant at heart. And this is the famous James 4, 6 passage that says what? God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? So overall, these, these above principles that we have just looked at, God does not clearly listen to the prayer of the unbeliever, but he also, we need to conclude that God does not answer the prayers of Christians who are living in sin or praying for self-centered, with self-centered motives. That's what these verses are telling us. But let's continue to move on, and we're back at our main passage in Matthew 7, 9 through 11. Matthew 7, 9 through 11. So turn there. I know we're all over the place this morning, but I have more than one verse to get through. So it's. Okay, so Matthew 7, 9 through 11, it says this Or which one of you. If his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So here Jesus compares God, the Father, to human parents. Let me ask you, what kind of family were you raised in? And growing up in these various households, we came to present our requests to our parents on who they were and how they would respond to us. And we learned to adapt to our requests from their perspective. So, for example, those of us who grew up in overindulged households asked our parents with boldness. We asked about everything because we knew we would get what we wanted. While others of us grew up in with strict households and we came to them, to our parents, with request, with fear and hesitancy, knowing that most of the time what we ask will be shot down. While still some of us were raised in households where we were invisible. Our parents didn't even know we existed. So we would ask them things, but it'd fall on deaf ears. So finally we quit asking. While finally others of us grew up in households where we came to our parents with our request in confidence, entrusting ourselves to them, knowing they had our best at mind. Similarly, similarly, the way we view God determines how we will come to Him. If we look at God as a tyrant, well, we will come to Him that way. If we look at God as a cosmic genie, then we will come to Him that way. If we have a biblical perspective of Him, knowing He's loving, yet He's holy at the same time, and we come with reverence, we will present a request to Him in confidence, knowing He has our best in mind. So truth number four says this. Our view of God determines how we ask, seek, and knock. 
Truth number four says our view of God determines how we will ask, seek, and knock. How do we see God this morning? Where do we get our perspective of God? Does it come from our culture? Does it come from our past? Does it come from others who talk to us about God? Or do we get our perspective from Scripture? Like many of us who grew up in dysfunctional families, we often have a wrong or distorted perspective of God as well. We will get a right, accurate, correct view of God if we are in His Word. The question is, are we in His Word? Are we spending time in His Word daily, wrestling in Scripture Let's reread Matthew 7.11 again, which says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So Christ boils this down to character. Who we are and who God is. And Christ compares humanity and God from a parental perspective. And Christ without hesitation says, You who are evil... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Who is Christ calling evil? Who is Christ calling evil? Answer. All of us. He's calling us all evil. So Christ is saying that we who are wicked, we who struggle with sin still, we who are selfish, we who struggle with pride, we who often are fearful in so many ways, we who often lack love for others. He's talking to us, brothers and sisters. When he talks about we who are evil, Christ says, if you can care for your children, yourselves, how much more can God, who is perfect, care for us? But let's imagine for a second a child who's hungry, thirsty, or needing something, and their parent decides not to take care of them. For example, it's like a toddler who runs out in the front door, heading for the street, and the parent, instead of going after their child, concludes that they are too busy or too tired to get their little toddler from running in the road. What would you think of that parent? What? We would be outraged, right? We would be disgusted with a parent who is so heartless and lazy. A parent is supposed to love, protect, and take care of their children. But I'm afraid that we often look at God like a bad or dysfunctional parent. God is not forgetful, nor is He lazy. God is good. God is patient with us. God is loving to us. God wants to hear from His children. Which leads to truth number five. Truth number five says, God is our Father and He is good. God is our Father and He is good. Do we see God as our Father who is good this morning? Do we see God as a loving Father? I want to look at Romans 8, 14 through 17. So turn to Romans 8, 14 through 17, and then we're going to jump down to verses 26 through 34. So we're going to do a little bit of reading here. So Romans 8, 14 through 17, and then 
verse, we're going to drop down the verses 26 and 34. And I, and I could try to exposit this whole section, but we'd be here for the next probably two years. So we're just going to scratch the surface on a few things here real fast. And it says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Skip down to verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purposes. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of God, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And, he also, and those whom He also called, He also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Amen? Wow. What love God has put... His love on display when He sacrificed His Son for us when we were still yet His enemies, the Bible says. It says that God not only sacrificed for us, but He adopted us into His family as heirs to the throne. Are we still excited about that? We learn from these passages as well that God chose His children by calling, justifying, and glorifying them. Paul says that we, what can we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us, church? Those that have turned their life over to Christ in faith and repentance are now children of God. They are now accepted, protected, blessed, loved, disciplined, encouraged, and supported by the holy, sovereign God of the universe. We are blessed. We are blessed. We have a Father who loves us more than we can imagine or fathom. Do we saturate ourselves in God's love? Do we sit and soak in it and think about that and get excited? Our God is here to glorify Himself and to do what's best for His children. In conclusion... In conclusion, do we have a right view of our Father this morning? Are we poor in spirit? Are we depending on Christ for our strength 
And that's often revealed in our prayer life or lack of prayer life. I know we're busy. I know we have a lot of things to do. But if we're not busy on our knees, we are not walking in the power of the Spirit. It's just that simple. May we continue to ask, seek, and knock, knowing we have a Father who wants to hear from His children. Jesus concludes by saying, How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Father, that You do want to hear from Your children. Father, we ask that You continue to put on our hearts to depend on You, to be poor in spirit. And if we're not, help us to call on You and ask You to change our hearts that continue to need to be changed. Help us to be a church that truly is walking in Your Word and truly magnifying You. Not entertaining and just trying to grow a church to grow a church, but to truly make disciples of Christ for Your glory and Your glory alone. May we be that type of church. Father, we thank you for what you're doing. We thank you so much that you have brought us together in your sovereign will and have created what you have created in this community of believers and you have put your spirit in us. And we thank you for that. And it's through Christ's name, amen.